welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for our church family. We thank you that we can gather together to be together. Lord, if we have one another, your spirit and your word, Lord, then we have everything we need. And uh, we're so thankful for that. We pray, Lord, that you would meet us here, meet us in this place. Just thinking today about the metaphor of the wind for your Holy Spirit and the power that your spirit has. Your spirit comes and goes. We don't see where he's coming from or where he's going, but all of a sudden he'll blow powerfully upon us. And we just pray that you do that, not literally, but by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Had to be specific. In this section of Romans, so we're in Romans chapter 3, if you guys want to turn there. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. And a lot of people have said that this paragraph is the most important paragraph in the Bible. And if that's true, then it's the most important paragraph ever written. And if that's true, then there's absolutely no pressure on tonight and how it would go. And why is this so important? This is an important chapter, guys, uh, Romans 3, 21 through 31. This is the most important chapter because it shows us how we can get righteousness. It shows us how we can be right before God, how we can have a right standing with God. And before I get started on that, I want to ask you, why do you want that? Why would you want righteousness? Why would you want right standing with God? Why would you want to be right before God? And the answer to that question is, is that we want to be right with God because we want God, okay? It's not ultimately to avoid hell, although that's huge. It's not ultimately for any kind of feeling we'd have. It's to have God. God is the greatest treasure, and we need to be right with him to be with him. We want him. That's the ultimate value of the gospel. And to have that, we have to have righteousness. Psalm 24, 3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. We want righteousness. We want to be right before God because we want God. The God who made this universe, the God who made this planet, the God who made you to love and enjoy him and glorify him in all that you do. The God who is exactly like Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? Jesus is the ultimate expression of what God is actually like. The God we want is the God shown in Jesus Christ. He is the source of all true enduring joy. Every other joy outside of him is a counterfeit. And everyone that's known God deeply attests to that. King David said this, In his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand is pleasures forevermore. That's what King David said about, about God. St. Bernard said this, I've seen only a fraction of God's glory, and it is awesome. Okay? Thomas Aquinas said, God is happiness. He is happiness. Thomas Watson said, God is a delicious good. I love that. God is a delicious good. If that's true, and it is, and this is the most important paragraph ever written, because this shows us how we can have God as our treasure. Some years ago, a few of us were over at MSJC over here doing some evangelism, and we met a guy who's a Russian Orthodox, a guy with a really strong accent, really cool guy, funny. And I asked him, I said, uh, how can you be certain on the day of judgment that you'll be right before God? And he goes, that's simple. You just have to do the 10 rules. And I was like, what? He goes, the 10 rules. And I was like, the 10 rules? Oh, wait, he means the 10 commandments, right? I'm like, okay. And I said, 
how's that going for you? And he got this kind of guilty smile and he goes, nobody's perfect. And we laughed and it's like, yeah, exactly. That's the problem is that God requires perfection. And the law shows us we don't measure up. And so I showed him Romans 3.20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so that's what the 10 rules get you. The 10 rules get you a place where you know you need righteousness. You know you need a righteousness that's outside of you, right? You know you need a righteousness that's a, it's a gift righteousness. It comes from outside of you, credited to you. And that's exactly what this paragraph's about. And I love how this paragraph starts. Take a look at verse 21. It starts with beautiful words, but now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I love that, but now. Those are beautiful gospel words. But now, right? You could imagine somebody saying, I've been running from God for a long time, but now. I felt like such a hypocrite, but now. I've been so lost in my sin, but now. I feel so guilty and alone and hopeless, but now, right? In the gospel, guys, sin and guilt and condemnation and wreckage are not God's final word over your life. God has the final word over your life. And that final word, if you'll come to him, is Jesus. And Jesus has a righteousness for you that's not based on your own obedience. Praise God. Take a look at verse 21 again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. And then dropping a little further down, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so this righteousness of the gospel is a righteousness apart from law. It's, it's not based on your own obedience to the law. It's a righteousness that Jesus earned and is credited to you. The gospel, guys, is the good news that you can be righteous before God based on his righteousness, not yours. Based on Jesus' obedience, not yours. And I remember when I first heard this. I didn't grow up in the church, but I did have a Catholic grandma who made sure that I went to Catholic catechism classes and kind of got ready for first confession and first communion. And I loved going, actually. My parents could attest to whether I loved going, but I remember loving going. And I remember learning about the Trinity and the two natures of Christ and my sin and God's holiness and about the cross and the resurrection. But the one thing I didn't learn there was the gospel. The explanation that I got, at least as a kid's level, was that my soul needed to be this perfectly white thing, pure thing to be acceptable before God. And that every time I sinned, stains would come onto it. And, and I couldn't, you know, be with God in heaven unless my soul was perfectly white. But sin kept me from it. So far, so good, right? But they told me that the way that I get it clean is I would go to confession and do penance. And then it would be clean, but it wasn't permanent. It was temporary. So that when I sinned again, it would get stained again. And guys, even as an elementary school kid, I knew that wouldn't work for me. You know, I sinned way too much to where I'd ever just happen to die right at the right time, right? I'd have to be hit by a bus coming right out of the confession booth for this system to work because it wasn't permanent. My sin kept coming back. Years later, I was sent from a pretty violent public school to a Christian school because my parents figured, well, they won't beat them up there. They weren't believers at the time they are now, but they were like, we'll send them to the Christian school. They probably won't beat them up there, which is generally true. And it was true there. And it was in a, a chapel message there that I first heard the gospel. And the guy explained the gospel like this passage does. And that's when I found out that I could be made clean permanently. That I could be made right before God permanently. And, um, and it would be by Jesus' perfect obedience, not mine. I remember just thinking like, 
that could work. <laughs> this is something that could really work for me, who sins all the time. Like, God would make me righteous before him. And guys, I've never lost my excitement about that. That's why I'm here. That's why I do what I do, is because I haven't lost my excitement about that message, because it's a permanent righteousness that God gives based on Jesus Christ. He says here that the whole Old Testament points to it. Look at verse 21 in the middle. It says, the law and the prophets bear witness to this. The law and the prophets, guys, the Old Testament bears witness to righteousness we can have as a gift through the Messiah. It points to that. The whole Old Testament does. Listen to Psalm 130, verse 3. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. That's the heart that, that the Old Testament would leave you to. Is like, if you're keeping score, if you're keeping track of my sin, there's no way I can stand before you, but there's a way of forgiveness. And they would have seen that way of forgiveness through the Messiah to come. And that righteousness is a gift that's the only way to God. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's no distinction. I love this. I love this no distinction thing. No matter who you are, you're a sinner. And no matter who you are, you need a righteousness you can only get from Jesus. There's no distinction. Every one of us is in the same boat. We've all made the same wreck of our lives. Remember chapter 1 talked about kind of how the irreligious have made a wreck of their lives. And then chapter 2 talks about how the religious have made a wreck of their lives. He says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Actually, it says fall short. It's present tense. You're still falling short. We're falling short every day of the glory of God. You were meant, you were designed to reflect God's wisdom and his goodness and his beauty. You were meant to be like a little mirror on a 45 degree angle where God's wisdom and beauty and love would shower down upon you and you would reflect it out. That your life should be a picture of who God is to everyone. No pressure, right? That's what you were designed to be, to be an image bearer of God. And we've all fallen short. Chapter 1 says that the irreligious fall short by denying God, right? And replacing God with idols. And that's one way to fall short. And chapter 2 says the religious have fallen short by being hypocrites, saying that they follow God and are hypocritical. But we've all fallen short. And we've all been offered the same gift of righteousness. He says further, justified by his grace as a gift. And so what I want to look at tonight is I want to look at how did he make this gift possible? And what's really cool, guys, in this, in this chapter is there's three images here. There's three words that he uses here in verse 24 and 25 to describe the gospel. And they describe the gospel in different ways. The words are justification or justify, redemption, and propitiation. We're going to look at those three words. It's super important that we feel and taste and know these three words with depth, right? Take a look at it. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And when I read that, do you sense what those words mean? You might not. You might hear that and go, all those words just basically mean salvation. Like when I read it, you might have heard this. We are saved by his grace as a gift through the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward for our salvation by his blood. You might have heard something like that, that all those words just mean salvation. Justification, redemption, propitiation. You might just think that those all just mean salvation, that they, they don't have any real feel to you. But it's really important, guys, that you actually know what each of these words mean, okay? Because each of them have a different texture and a different taste, and they'll hit your soul in a different way. For example, it's like, 
It's like if you were to take all your meals in a blender, okay? So you got this great lunch, you put it in a blender, and you make a puree, and you eat that every day, okay? That's what it's like if you don't know what these words mean. It's like a gospel puree. It doesn't really have distinct tones and distinct textures, and it doesn't hit your heart in the right ways it needs to hit you. And so we're going to look at each one of these words because I think that a lot of Christians are bored with the gospel because they haven't really enjoyed the depths of the gospel. There's layers to this thing. There's parts to this thing. There's different medicines for your soul in these words. And so let's look at them. First one's justification, verse 24, that we're justified by his grace. Justification, beautiful word. The Gentile hearers would have heard Paul talking about justification, and they would have thought of it as a legal term. It was a legal term used in the court of law, right? If a judge justified you, they declared you in the right. They declared you righteous. This was something a judge would do. They would justify you. They would say, you're the one that's in the right. In justification, guys, God declares us in the right with him. Righteous. And it, like I said, it's permanent. It's a legal declaration. And it stands because he's the only judge that matters. And that's the thing that shocked me when I was in eighth grade, is that he could make a declaration of me being righteous apart from my own works, and that it would be his permanent declaration. Guys, if tonight, if you trust in Jesus, you can know for sure what God's declaration will be of you on the day of judgment. You can know for sure. In justification, your judgment day has been moved from the future into the past when Jesus died on the cross. That was your judgment day. And the verdict of the final judgment is brought into the present. You get to hear it now. And it's righteous before God. You've been declared righteous before God. Some people take this wait-and-see approach to the final judgment. I think this is a terrible idea, right? How do you think you'll stand before God? Well, you know, we'll just have to see. A lot of religions are like that. You know, people that I grew up with that were Roman Catholic felt that way. Like, they were humble people, and they couldn't really say, you know, I don't know if I'm going to measure up or not. Guys, that is no way to approach the most important moment in eternity, is to wait and see. You can know tonight what the verdict is. Actually, you know either way. If you're not in Christ, we know the verdict from Romans 3.20. No one's going to be justified before God based on their works. We can know for a fact you'll be declared guilty on the final day. And we can know for a fact, if you trust in Christ, you'll be declared righteous. Isn't that nice? Isn't that important to you? To know for sure what the verdict on the final day is going to be about you? This would be the most important thing for you to get scored away. And you can get that scored away tonight by trusting in Jesus. Notice that God justifies us by his grace. Grace is an awesome word. It means God's favor to those who deserve his disfavor. It's a gift. It's grace. It's a gift. It's not due to any cause in you. You're not justified before God because of any cause in you. You might be sitting there going like, I trust in Jesus. I have no idea why God saved me. That makes two of us. I have no idea why God saved you either. Actually, none of these people here have any idea why God saved you. It's not due to any cause in you. That's the point. It's grace, guys. And it's not due to any cause in you. It's not due to any cost to you. It doesn't cost you anything, but it costs him a lot. Look at verse 24 which is the next image. We're justified by his grace as a gift through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a different gospel. We're with a different flavor, different texture, different thing to hit you. So justification, legal term, courtroom, you know, you've been declared righteous. What's redemption? Redemption is another word they would have known. The, the Gentile hearers in Rome that heard this would have thought about redemption as a business term. 
It's a business term. It's a, it's a term that was used in slave markets. It was a term to buy somebody back out of slavery. That's what redemption is. It's to buy somebody out of slavery at a price. Paul's Jewish hearers would have heard something a little different, but related, they would have heard the Exodus, that God redeemed his people from slavery to Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb, that they were redeemed out. We too, guys, were born into slavery, weren't we? Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. Guys, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The sinner thing came first. We were born in bondage to sin. And so we live that out every day. We need to be redeemed. We need to be bought out of slavery. And this gospel image of redemption tells us that Jesus paid the price to buy us out of slavery to sin. So it's a different word. It has a different concept. It's about your enslavement to sin. And God redeemed you out of that by the blood of Jesus, just like the, the blood of the Passover lamb was able to free the Jews out of slavery in Egypt. You have come out of bondage to sin increasingly. And we're going to get to that in Romans 6. But it's a process by which we get more and more freed out of slavery to sin. It's not instantaneous. Justification is instantaneous. But this redemption thing is something that that works out over time in our lives. So that's redemption. What's the third one? Third one's propitiation. Look at verse 25. In Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is the third image. So you got justification, legal term, courtroom type term, redemption, business term, slave market, you've been freed out, you're no longer a slave to sin. Propitiation was a sacrificial, like religious term used in temples. And what propitiation is, well, the way the Jews would have heard it is they would have thought of the Day of Atonement when the blood was brought into uh, the Holy of Holies by the high priest and it would have been put on the mercy seat on the ark and that would have been a way of turning away God's anger for sin. The Gentiles, too, would have thought of propitiation. They would have thought of their own temple sacrifices to try and turn away the the wrath of the gods. Propitiation, basically, is an offering that turns away wrath. You think about, like, the word propitiate. Propitiate means to appease, to to take away wrath, to take away anger. You guys remember in Romans 1.18, it says the wrath of God's been revealed. Well, here's where it's dealt with. It's removed by Jesus' blood. And what's really neat about this, guys, is how different this would have been to the Gentiles that heard this, because they would have thought of blood sacrifices to somehow appease the wrath of the gods and that they would bring some offering and make things right. But the gospel tells us there's no sacrifice we can bring. There's no sacrifice that can cover our own sins. And what's really cool about this passage is in the gospel, God himself gives the sacrifice needed. Take a look at it. Verse 25, it says, In Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. This is totally different. This is totally shocking. That God, there's wrath, and rightfully so. It's not this flying off the handle, kind of irrational thing. It's justifiable anger against my sin. And you and you might think, well, what, am I, what do I need to do to make this right? And the gospel tells you you can do nothing. And then tells us the good news that, you know what? God offers a sacrifice. This has been totally different than anything these Romans had ever heard. They would have thought of them bringing the sacrifice. So strange that the one who needs to be appeased would actually offer the sacrifice to remove his own anger. Isn't that amazing? That God himself would become a man and become the one that actually made the offering to turn away his own wrath through the blood of Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb. Amazing, huh? See how all these words have a different feeling? They all do something different for your soul. 
If you feel guilty, if you feel condemned, you need to hear justification. God's declared you righteous in Jesus. If you're feeling your sin controlling you, and you're feeling like, man, I don't think they'll ever be free of this sin. I've always wrestled with this sin. There's no way out. Then you need to hear about redemption, that Jesus's blood has redeemed you from slavery to sin. You're not to live as a slave to anybody but Jesus now, right? And that you can learn in, a, in an orderly way how to walk in freedom from slavery to sin. Or if you feel like, man, I've sinned so many times and I keep coming back. God must be really angry, right? Then you need to hear about propitiation. God's not angry. God's removed all of his wrath through the blood of his own son. There's no anger there. There's no wrath there. Do you see how each one is a different gospel medicine for your soul? That's why we need to know these words deeply. It's because they have different solutions for us. So you might ask this question. This is all very complicated. There's a lot going on here. Is this the only way God could have done it? I mean, could God have saved us in a different way? Was it necessary that he did it through Christ and the cross? And the answer is, it was absolutely necessary for it to be done this way. And we see that in verse 25. Take a look at it. In the second half, it says this. So speaking of the cross, speaking of propitiation, speaking of Jesus coming and dying for our sins, he says this. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the cross is not just something about us and our need. The cross actually communicates something about God. Okay? It was important for it to be done this way because the cross communicates something about God. The cross shows the kind of God that he is. And what the cross shows is that God is both love and just. He's both love and just. He's both perfect in his love and perfect in his justice. God is just. God always does what is right. God always does what is just. God is the perfect judge of the most supreme court. God the judge will right all wrongs. He's a perfect judge in that he will right all wrongs. God's rulings are the final standard of justice. So if you ever see something God's doing and you're rightly understanding from the word and you don't think it's just, you're wrong. Okay? Because he's the final standard of justice. Sorry, but you don't get to vote on this. If you're rightly understanding something he does and you're like, I don't know if that's just, it is. Okay? Because God is justice. Right? There's no higher law outside him. He's never like, let me check on what I should do here and consult a book or, you know, find the legal statutes. He himself is the standard of justice. Isn't that wild? Okay, so he is just, but God is also love. You say, what does that mean? God eternally gives himself to others. That's what it means that God is love. He eternally gives himself to others. You say, well, how is that possible? Like from all eternity? Yes, God is triune. He's three persons, one God. And so he's been eternally giving himself to others. Within the Trinity, there's been a love and a community and service to one another. They've eternally given themselves to one another. And out of that excess, that love that they've had from eternity past, hard to even talk about those kind of things. I don't even know if that's the right term. There was an excess of love. There's an excess of joy. And that excess of love and joy resulted in creating this place so that they could share the love and joy they've had from all eternity with creatures that could be welcomed into that love and joy in that community. Isn't that amazing? And that's why he created this place. Not because he needed something, he didn't need anything. He had excess to give. And so he desired to give it to us. 
And so at the cross, guys, what we're seeing is his full justice and his full love. It's not that one of them somehow won out over the other or one had to be suppressed. It's like, man, I really should judge him, but I'm just going to love him instead. That's not what happened at the cross or the other way around, right? I want to love him, but I need to judge. It's, it's both fully expressed. It's the full-blown expression of both his love and his justice. And something you need to know about God, God always does everything from all that he is. Okay, He always does everything from all that he is. The theological term for this is divine simplicity. God is simple. Everything he does, he wanted to do with all of himself. Because God is not, he doesn't have mixed emotions. Okay, God isn't like, oh, I don't know what to do. Right? God doesn't wrestle within himself. God is not turbulent or torn. He, he's not muddled or moody. He's not complicated or conflicted. Sounds nice, huh? Doesn't that sound nice? Everything he does, he meant to do. And he had no other desire. He does everything he does with all that he is. James says that there's no variation or shadow due to change within him. He always does everything with all that he is. Everything he does is an expression of his whole being. Everything he does, he does because he's all-loving, all-powerful, totally just. He's holy. He's all-good. He's sovereign. Everything he does expresses all that he is. Isn't that awesome? I love his simplicity. In verse 26 says... The cross was the way for God to be both just and the justifier. He was actually able to be the righteous judge and declare you righteous at the same time. He was able to be both a perfect judge at the cross and your deliverer, which solves a massive tension. In the Old Testament, God's worshipped as both the judge of all the earth, and he's worshipped for that because we need him. <laughs> we need him to come and fix this place. We need him to set things right. So the Psalms talk about his judgment, not as a bummer, but as the one hope for the world, that he's going to come and he's going to set all things right. But God's also worshiped as the deliverer of his people, right? That he's the deliverer of his people. We need God to be both. We need God to be 100% just, and we need him to be our deliverer. Because guys, our world's a mess. You may have noticed. Did you notice? No? Okay, I'll send you some things to read. All right, if you're unaware. But our world's a mess, right? We need God to intervene and judge and set all things right, and he will. God is a perfect judge. But problem, we're the ones that have made the world a mess, right? If he comes and judges and sets all things right, that's kind of bad news for us who have made this mess, right? We're the sinners, and so and we deserve to be judged, so we need God to be deliverer too. And that's what he is at the cross. Guys, every sin that's ever been committed will be judged. Every wrong will be set right. Every sin will be paid for, either by us or by Christ. Justice will be served. All debts will be reconciled. And even the debts of the Old Testament believers, I think that's what's going on here in verse 25. Because you may wonder, like, how did it work in the Old Testament? Because Jesus hadn't come yet, and yet they're getting forgiven, and they're getting forgiven by grace through faith, but Jesus hasn't come yet. What's going on? And I think that's what's in verse 25. Check this out. Paul says that God, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. I think what's going on there is the Old Testament believers, they trusted in God's grace that they would be saved by grace through the Messiah to come, hadn't come yet. And when they sinned, God forgave them knowing that he was going to have those sins paid for by Jesus. It's kind of like the sins of the Old Testament believers were put on a credit card. Okay, So they're put on a credit card and that debt is going to be paid by Jesus. That's what's going on here. And that's super important, okay? That's super important because God is just. 
He's righteous. He judges all sin. And so, for example, like King David, Old Testament believer, about a thousand years before the cross, he commits adultery to cover it up. He kills her husband, right? Prophet Nathan comes. He confronts David. David says, you're right. I've sinned against the Lord. What does Nathan say? He says immediately, the Lord has also put away your sin. You won't die. Too soon. I think. Sounds too soon to me, right? There are all going to be all kinds of consequences, but he's not getting punished here the way he should. I mean, there's going to be consequences in his life like crazy, but he's not getting divine wrath here. What's going on? This could call into God's question God's justice, couldn't it? That we heard in chapter 2 that God doesn't have favoritism. Why, why isn't David's sin going to be paid for? David's sin is going to be paid for. It's put on that credit card, right? So a thousand years later, his descendant, Jesus Christ, pays that debt. And that's what's going on in verse 25 when it talks about he passed over sins previously committed. They're being held to be paid for later. Your sins were prepaid. You know, your sins were prepaid. So they were never put on that credit card. They were paid before you were even born, which is amazing. Isn't that amazing? It wasn't applied to you. You didn't receive that forgiveness until you came to Christ and, and trusted in him. But they were paid for beforehand, which is amazing. Okay. Only through the cross, guys, could God be both our deliverer and our judge. At the cross, Jesus delivered us by paying that penalty, by, by being judged in our place. God the Son becomes a man. He lives a perfect life in our place and pays that penalty. How do we receive it? Look at verse 25. End of verse 25 says that it's received by faith. Received by faith. So it's a gift received by faith. You can have, you can have, you all can have, everyone you know can have, full forgiveness tonight. You have permanent righteousness of Jesus tonight. You can have Jesus as your eternal treasure tonight. You can have him forever as your treasure tonight. And you receive him by faith. You receive him by faith. And I know for some people, they'll say things like, this is a real common one. I've heard that before. I've heard the gospel before. I kind of believe the Bible, but I don't have faith. I don't have that thing, you know? Like faith is like a lightning bolt that's going to hit you or it's some, it's some weird religious mystical thing, ether, that pops up and you have it or don't have it. Okay, guys, let me demystify faith for you. Faith is trust, okay? Faith is trust. We have faith in people that have shown themselves to be faithful, Okay, you guys, your spouse, your friends, you know, other people that you know, you have faith in them because they're faithful. That's not mystical. That's not a weird religious force. It's just a thing you have in a relationship, right? Somebody's faithful, so you have faith in them. Somebody's trustworthy, so you trust them. Okay, so the question tonight is when you look at Jesus Christ in the Gospels and you look at who he is, do you find him trustworthy or not? That's the question. Say, so, well, I don't have faith. I don't know where, how I would get it. Do you trust him or not? You know, do you look at the person of Jesus in the Gospels? If you haven't done it for a while, I would say open the Gospel of Luke, read through it chapter by chapter, and just write in the margins, is this the kind of person I should trust? Does this seem like a trustworthy person? And if you trust him, you put your trust in him, you have faith. That's all it is. You have faith in him. You trust him. You're entrusting your life to him. You're saying, I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to receive this gift of righteousness from you. And if that's where you're at, even tonight, trust him by taking the next step. You know, call out to him and just ask him to take the burden of your sin away, and he'll do it. 
and then take the Lord's Supper with us because you're worthy to do that because you're worthy in Christ, right? You could do that tonight. And tell us, and we'd love to baptize you to celebrate that love that God has for you. One last thing I want to talk about and won't take long is what kind of a people does this message produce? Because some people say, oh, well, if it's, you know, if it's a gift and all this stuff, you're just going to have people doing whatever they want and acting crazy and, you know, Jesus already paid for it, so I'm just going to sin like crazy. It turns out that's not what happens when somebody really believes the gospel. That's not what happens. What kind of people does this message of the gospel produce? Because all preaching produces a community. This community is created by the preached word, okay? And depending on what's preached, it produces a different type of community. What kind of community, what kind of a people are we when we receive the regular preaching of the gospel and believe it? And the thing is, guys, is that the gospel produces the exact kind of people this world needs. The exact kind of community this world needs. The, the preached gospel creates a community that is exactly the kind of community that our world needs to see, to be invited into, to become a part of. And I see three qualities here at the end, and they won't take long. I know this sounds like a totally new sermon. But there's three things the gospel produces in us, and here they are. The gospel makes us a humble people, and I mean a people like we're a people together. A humble people, a unified people, and a good people. First, humble people. Look at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. Guys, the gospel produces a humble people. If you earn your right standing before God, you have something to boast about. You have something to brag about. You did it. You met the highest standard ever. You should brag about that, right? You can brag about it. But guys, the gospel tells us it's all Jesus, not us. And so our boasting's taken away because it strips away our self-righteousness. Strips away our self-righteousness. We had to be rescued by Jesus, right? I love to hike. And one of the fears I have when I go hiking is I have a fear that I'm going to do something stupid and have to be rescued by a very public, gigantic rescue operation. Okay? You see those on the news. Helicopter come gets a guy and they all... Have to, it's terrifying. Wouldn't that be terrible? It'd just be so humiliating, right? It'd be super embarrassing. Now imagine that person that had to be rescued going around bragging about how he got himself rescued. It's ridiculous, right? Stupid people who get rescued can't boast, right? Stupid people who get rescued can't boast. That's what this verse is about, right? Especially if somebody got killed in the process of rescuing you, which is exactly what happened to us. We've been rescued at the price of Jesus's life. He gets the glory we don't. We go around bragging about that. That's ridiculous. I love what Ray Ortland says. This is a mantra he has about the gospel. He says this, number one, I'm a complete idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. Number three, anyone can get in on this, right? Isn't that true of the gospel? I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright and anyone can have this, right? That's us. We've been rescued. And so it makes a humble people. Now we do have a confidence, but it's not the boasting, bragging confidence of the self-righteous. It's the humble confidence of a child well-loved by his father. That's what we are. We have this humble confidence that comes from being loved well by our father. So creates a humble people, creates a unified people. Look at verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. As the gospel creates a unified people, there is an incredible amount of division and conflict in our culture, right? That's the air we breathe, right? 
The world loves it because that us versus them thinking makes us feel super righteous because we're the good ones and we know very clearly who the bad ones are and that fuels our righteousness. And sadly, guys, that lust for division, because that's what it really is, a lust for division, has infected parts of the church. I don't sense it from you guys, but I think if we look at the wider church, it's infected the church. And one thing I want to say to you tonight is beware of any public Christians who make a living dividing the church. Okay? There's a bunch of them out there. They're on YouTube a lot. Okay? Public Christians that make a living dividing the church. Some of them, all they get is a few bucks on YouTube for their advertising. They're destroying the body of Christ for a few pennies a day, right? So beware of that. This particular church that was written to by Paul here had huge reasons for conflict. It was a community made up of natural enemies. You had Jews and Gentiles. Guys, the church is a community where we can have nothing else in common but Christ, and it's plenty. Isn't that cool? We're a unified people because we can have just Christ in common, and it's plenty. He says here that there's no distinction. If you have Christ, there's no meaningful distinction between anyone else in this church and you. No matter what your, your race is, what your socioeconomic situation is, your education, your politics, whatever it is, there's no meaningful distinction. We're all one in Christ. And when the church has that unity, which I feel from you guys, when the church has that unity, it's a place of refuge, guys, in a culture that's massively divided. And come into a place like that and be like, man, you guys are so unified with each other. You're so at peace with each other. And I know that that peace comes from Christ because you guys are so different. It's amazing. Last one. It creates a good people. Look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Turns out, guys, that both the religious and the irreligious disrespect God's law. The irreligious do it by denying God's existence and his authority, and so they disrespect God's law. The religious disrespect God's law by lowering its standards. Because it turns out if you're going to be righteous in your own eyes, you got to like take God's law and kind of bring it down a little bit, make it more attainable. Jesus constantly was dealing with people that were doing that. Only in the gospel are we able to look at God's law right in the face and deal with it. Deal with the fact we can't meet up to it. Deal with the fact that it reveals a completely holy God. Deal with the fact that it says that, like, I'm not righteous, I need Christ. And then we can take the law and we can see it as a way to love God back. Not as a way to earn things, but to love God back. The law is like God's, it's like his love languages. You know, what does God love? What would he see as something loving? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so we move from having a relationship that's contractual you know, where, you know, I'm going to try and obey him, that I can somehow get something from him, just loving him because of his love for us, simply out of gratitude. It frees us to that kind of relationship. And that's why you're here, guys. We're here to be a community truly built around the gospel, not built around anything else, truly built around Jesus, to be a humble people, a unified people, a good people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd make us that even more and more. And I thank you for all the evidences of grace I see as I look out at these people that I love, that I know. I see their lives. I know this is true of them. I know this is the work of your spirit through the gospel in their lives. And I'm just thankful for that. And Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, we just pray that you would give us a deep sense of how much you love us. You love us so much. And give us a, a real filling of your spirit that you would feed us in this time. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's your hope 
we'd ask you guys to take the Lord's Supper with us. In the Lord's Supper, guys, we celebrate our justification. We celebrate the fact that God has declared you righteous in Jesus, totally due to what he has done, not you. We celebrate our redemption. We celebrate that God has actually freed us from slavery to sin, and that the Holy Spirit is even now working that out in our lives. And we're not there yet. We don't feel that free, but we see it in bits and pieces as God's transforming us. And then we celebrate propitiation, that God has removed every obstacle to welcome us home. And I don't want you to have the sense in the gospel that it's like God loves me after the cross, right? That, you know, God didn't love me until he sent Jesus and paid for my sin. Now he loves me. God loved you beforehand, right? Ephesians 1 says he chose you. If you're a Christian, he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so his love for you came way before there was wrath upon your sin, okay? He chose you. He sent Christ way before you existed. Jesus came and paid that debt for you. It's amazing, right? He loves you. So we celebrate propitiation. If that's your hope, we'd ask you to take it with us. In the scriptures, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on the night that the Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. For as often as you eat that bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's thank him and worship. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.